0: Hello, folks, and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and, of course, improving your triathlon performance. This week, Brad Cairns joins me again to tie up some loose ends following our recent podcast back in August. Specifically, I wanted to clarify questions I had about his book, Two Meals a Day, chat more about the value of high-intensity repeat training known as hurt versus hit training and also take a deep dive into brad's own daily routines and habits so let's get right to it and hear from brad welcome back brad kent simon great to be back yeah it seems like only a short while oh hold on it was only a
1: short while since we were last chatting but um, that's the fun part is you know gathering up all the uh the possible continued questions and conversation. So I I love your preparation. We talked a little bit off off recording, and we are ready to hit this hard. So
0: buckle up, people. We got some good stuff. We are buckle up indeed. So um yeah, some things we never got chance to uh, really tie up the loose ends for last time, Brad. Uh, firstly, let's talk about your book, Two Meals a Day. I can see it's positioned there by your right shoulder again. Yeah, there it is, conveniently. Just I can just see it under the the microphone. So good, good product placement. So some specific questions I had on that. Um, I work with a lot of people who are doing Iron Man. now. Whilst I I understand two meals a day, and I've I've before your book came out, I followed this when I've been travelling, and I wanted to maybe have breakfast at the hotel and then an evening meal and miss out on the day or sort of um, you know the fastest stuff and and just eating at lunchtime. I, I wonder how. If any, is there any conflict with somebody who might be doing lots of training on trying to follow a two meals a day philosophy?
1: I think there could be a conflict if someone's not consuming enough calories and we do have that risk that's very real, especially for low body fat females are the loudest voices here where they're doing CrossFit. They already have a, a six pack and they, they they turn heads in the supermarket and they're trying to uh, get all the benefits of the ketogenic diet. And it just adds up to be too many stressors. So I do feel like there's a distinct fork in the road when we're talking about uh, this advanced dietary strategy. And the the particulars that are popular these days and the fork in the road is whether you're trying to reduce excess body fat or not, whether you have metabolic uh, risk disease risk markers or not. And if you're metabolically healthy, you're already proven to be good at burning fat because you just rode for four hours and you're competing in races and uh, your, your blood work looks great, then you don't stand to benefit as much as someone who has metabolic dysfunction, who desperately needs to reduce intake of processed carbohydrates and industrial seed oils and drop excess body fat and get all those metabolic markers in line. And so I think, boy, um, then it opens up to, okay, well, if I just want to perform and recover as my main goals, because my health status is, is excellent. Uh, then we can you know, talk about a variety of different strategies. One of them that's really interesting to me is this uh, increased emphasis on dietary protein, especially for athletic folks. And a lot of experts are backing off on these warnings that used to be mm-hmm. bantered about uh, a few years ago where, oh, don't eat too much protein or you'll uh, accelerate the... Uh, the, the growth factors in the bloodstream, and that causes an increased risk of cancer. You don't want to do that. And now that's, uh, it turns out people that I trust and, and listen to a lot, Rob Wolf, Paul Saladino, Mark Sisson, uh, that these, uh, warnings of consuming excess protein have been overblown, especially for healthy, fit, active people. And so I try to prioritize protein in my diet because I do not want to turn
0: down any of those knobs that relate
1: to performance
0: and recovery. Mm. There is some research that I've seen. I think they did a longitudinal study on um, uh, physique athletes. I think oh, so it was twelve months long, and they fed them twice as much protein as is recommended, so four grams per kilogram of body weight per day for twelve months. And the blood work that they did at the end showed no significant and deleterious differences from it was at the start. And I think they concluded from that. Um, you know, over consuming on the protein and most people are going to struggle to consume four grams per kilo per day um, on a regular basis. Even doing that doesn't have any um, long term impacts on kidney function or liver function. So therefore, we don't need to worry about which, in, which is in line with what you've just said from the other experts. Well, also that satiety factor
1: is so huge. And so you don't hear a lot of people complaining that they overate three steaks last night and they feel terrible, or they had three omelets instead of one and a half. And so that's kind of helps you naturally regulate your caloric intake. And back to the example of the hard training uh, multi sport endurance athlete, I, I do feel like we have a couple of things to discuss here in terms of dietary choices. One is that a significant percentage of participants are walking around carrying excess body fat, yet they're training <laughs> for the ultra or the, the, the mountain climb challenge or the half Ironman or the Ironman. So uh, there's a lot of athletes due to uh, training errors and poor dietary choices. Uh, are frustrated by this. So just because you have a a race entry doesn't mean that you might you might want to uh, consider uh, changing up your diet to drop excess body fat. And I think the first thing that we have to talk about is that there's really no justification to consume uh, refined, processed, nutrient deficient foods for anyone. And I think the athletes are. Uh, guilty of taking these hall passes out and saying that they can consume the cream puffs from the the local bakery because they've just finished uh, sixty miles on the road or they're about to go for a long workout, and this stuff uh, has. It generates oxidative stress. That's inflammatory. It doesn't have any nutrition, and so the athlete who's got that finely tuned body who wants to perform and recover and control inflammation after workouts—they're the last person that should be seen eating, uh, you know, a, a, a pasty cake pie. Uh, but those are the people that you know have that calorie uh, buffer, and so they're found consuming those. So I think that's a really good thing to think about. Is if, if you're an athlete, you can enjoy heaping servings of these uh, nutritious foods and you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, ignoring hunger pains because you're, uh, in the name of being healthy, but, you know, let's make sure that you emphasize the, the nutritious, colorful stuff on your
0: plate. I think I remember your, um, your friend Phil Maffetone talking about this, this over fat syndrome that you get in athletes. It's like, if you're doing 12 hours a week training or more, how have you got that belly? You know, what are you not doing to, to sort of keep that thing there? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, Mafitone
1: cites research that 91% of the global population is over fat. And that includes a lot of skinny looking people that have a little paunch in the midsection, that visceral fat, which is so dangerous and so uh, adverse. And so, boy, it it does open your eyes to think if we're consuming these processed foods, our body doesn't know what to do with them. Our fat burning systems get dysregulated. We particularly add the unwanted belly fat or visceral fat that surrounds the organs and has Mm -hmm. its own inflammatory metabolic properties that that puts you in a bad situation, no matter how many hours you're training and all other things being equal. So if we can all agree to, and, and back to the book, I mean, we start two meals a day book out saying, look, here's the first thing you got to do is get rid of the junk in your diet and until we do that we don't even need to converse further about your food choices or your timing of your meals or the idea that we uh, eat and snack too much throughout the day and we'd be much better off having breaks periods of time where we transition over to uh, burning stored body fat as our number one source of fuel but if you are throwing this junk into your mouth uh in on a routine basis it's going to be really hard to do things like fasting or cutting carbs and trying to be keto or whatever it is because you're you're dependent
0: upon regular feedings
1: of carbohydrates as your main source of energy
0: the uh, we ought to be clear here is we're not saying to triathletes you shouldn't enjoy that piece of nice cheesecake or a piece of occasionally but that's it it's supposed to be a treat not part of your every everyday diet Big distinction
1: there. Yeah. I'm all about enjoying life. And when we have that proper mindset where you can feel like you're in a celebratory uh, situation, you're enjoying every single bite, you're savoring it, you're making the absolute best choices when it is time to indulge in something rather than grabbing something in a wrapper from a convenience store, that's a huge difference.
0: It it did occur to me having done numerous Ironman races that it always seemed to take me a long time to get over the soreness. And I know you're going to get a lot of leg soreness for the first few days, but um, when I think back to my dietary habits in the, after those first few Man, it was, well, let's go to the ice cream store, let's have pizza, let's have cake. And, you know, I've just burnt several million calories so I can afford to do that. But per your comment about those inflammatory foods, they were contributing to the inflation, inflammation I already had in my legs. Mm. Um, so that was why it was taking longer to clear up. So a clean, you know, a small treat and had a clean diet with plenty of hydration after a race may also help you recover quicker.
1: Yeah. Here's one of the most amazing insights I've had on my podcast, just mind-blowing. My good friend, Dude Spellings, who's a, uh, a certified health coach in Austin, Texas. And um, he, uh, does this double crossing of the grand Canyon. I'm sure listeners listen across the yeah. ocean have yeah. heard yeah. the grand Canyon, but it's a 50 mile hike with like 13,000 feet of elevation gain. So you descend down to the river, you climb to the North rim, you go back down to the river and climb back to the South rim. It's an all day, 13 hour, 50 mile jaunt. And he did that. Uh, with a bunch of friends, he tried to do it with no calories and he almost made it. He had like a couple hundred calories of coconut butter to do this incredible event. And so everyone's emerging at the finish line, uh, you know, near dark and their support crew is holding a stack of pizzas Mm -hmm. so that everybody can feast after this amazing accomplishment. And instead, dude chose to just go to sleep in his tent and fast for another 12 hours after pretty much being fasted for the whole entire day. And, and hiking 50 miles. And he woke up the next morning and he said he had less stiffness, less soreness, less inflammation uh, from fasting. And of course, he's, he is going to get a meal at some point, but we know what happens to the body in a fasted state or basically a starvation state in the case of, you know, going all day long and burning calories and then laying down to sleep. And that is improved cellular repair, uh, incredibly good inflammation control. Uh, optimal immune function, all these things, the body is working fantastically uh, while the person sleeps to recover from the heart event. I think it's going to be a glimpse to the future of what the greatest do. I'm not necessarily a tour de France because they're different. They have to get up the next day and do it again. Uh, But there's going to be a place for uh, this sort of advanced strategy of letting the body repair itself mm-hmm. and not necessarily, you know, stuffing your face around the clock, just because you have put in the the hours in your training log.
0: Yeah. I've heard others, um, probably in your, in your world, Brad talk about, um, human growth hormone release and how, um, not eating might encourage more of that to be released, which would probably then, um, lead into that cellular improved cellular repair. You talk about Now, here's the thing I'd like to mention as a personal anecdote,
1: when I was back researching the keto reset diet with Mark Sisson, and I was diving deep into the ketogenic scene. Uh, this is when few people knew what it was back in 2017. So we're we're interviewing the world's leading experts and finding more about it. I got my blood meter. I'm pricking my finger several times a day. I'm tracking what I'm eating. All this stuff that I would never do now, or am way too um, you know busy or, or, or bored to continue on. But I was deep into the scene, and at that time, I was okay. Number one, I was in the older age groups. the 50 plus number two, I was trying to do these crazy difficult workouts in high jumping and sprinting. And number three, I was deeply restricting my carbohydrate intake and engaging in long periods of fasting. Uh, That would be number four. And if you're counting up all these stress factors, Mm -hmm. each thing that I mentioned, Are significant stressors to the body. So fasting is a stressor. Uh, Restricting carbohydrate intake is a stressor. Going out and doing um, eight times 100 meters after doing uh, jumping approach drills when you're 50 years old is a major stressor. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had Uh, a significant number of crash and burn episodes where I would feel great at the workout. I'd perform well, I'd be pumped up. I'd do another rep because I I was feeling it when I was at the track. But then 24, 36 hours later, I felt like a zombie and I'd be sitting typing on my computer and have to crash down for not a pleasant nap, but a absolute necessity Mm -hmm. bombed out to the universe nap, which is not quite as fun. Uh, And so I felt like, this could have been attributed to the accumulation of stress factors where perhaps for a guy like me who wasn't trying to drop excess body fat, it was just trying to perform and recover, maybe coming home and having a nice dose of carbohydrates would have facilitated further recovery. Carbohydrates, protein, whatever it is, instead of fasting for another four hours. Mm. So I think we all have to uh, shuffle the deck and, and, you know, weigh the various factors and various goals that we have. And I know you're going to, I mean, this is the start of this conversation was, Hey, what about endurance athletes? Is this two meals a day thing going to work for them? Or what about, um, healthy athletic females with the, you know, optimal body fat. Um, that's the kind of thing where we got to open up the nuances a little more. And Mm. I know it gets complex and complicated, maybe confused because people hear different things from different people. So I'm going to try to, um, keep things real here and say look one really really good way to guide yourself is your hunger and satiety signals and so if you're athletic and you're hungry it is time to sit down and have a delicious nutritious meal don't be uh you know negating the the idea of um you know your energys drooping you do have signs of hunger that's when it's time to go get food no matter what your schedule says or your your fasting goals of the day
0: yeah ask tommy Tommy Wood, another of your regular guests would say, you know, if you find something that works for you, then how can I argue with that? Whatever philosophy it is. And
1: Tommy's great message that I think about all the time was, you know, to, to kind of sort through all this uh, controversy about keto for athletes and can it work and can it not. He, he thinks that um, uh, his athletic types that he consults with, he encourages them to eat as much nutritious food as they like as much nutritious food as possible until they gain a pound of body fat, for example. And if you step on the scale or you look and notice that you're, you know, you're, you're adding fat, okay, then turn the dial back a little bit, but you're, you're kind of pushing out to getting the most good food in your body rather than uh, trying to worry about calories when you're already healthy and burning a lot of them. I kind of like that idea for many, many
0: people in that category. Yeah, I, I Tommy's got so much just very simple, sensible advice, hasn't he? Um, and I do, I do like your point there about thinking about the stressors that we have in our life. I see so many people that say, right, I'm training for an Ironman now and I'm going to start a keto diet. And I'm like, oh, maybe drop the training and start the keto diet, but don't try and do the keto diet at the same time because it's probably only going to end up one way.
1: Yeah. There's an adjustment period that we know about in order to become fat and keto adapted. Um, If you do it correctly, uh, it doesn't take a heck of a long time, but when you're coming from a high carbohydrate intake and you want to clean up your diet, it's a good idea to minimize the training stress load for a few weeks. And in doing so, you will support your goals of becoming uh, better at burning fat because boy, if you even tiptoe a tiny bit into those uh, chronic overly stressful exercise patterns where you're depleting a lot of glycogen, you're experiencing appetite for, especially for carbohydrates after these glycogen depleting workouts that occur too frequently. And that's not only bad training, but it's gonna make it really difficult to uh, transition over to a healthier diet free from the the processed foods that give you that quick energy that your brain's telling you to to consume because you just did three workouts that were slightly too difficult that day.
0: Well, that moves us on nicely there, Brad. While you're talking about energy depleting workouts, um, you have had, uh, I can't remember the name of your guest, but y- you'll know who I mean when we talk about hurt training. So my, my listeners will be familiar with high intensity interval training. We've had Professor Paul Larson on uh, a couple of times to talk about this, but your guest was talking about high intensity repeat training. And I am interested in that and interested in, Uh, how, whether it would, and how it would benefit um, endurance athletes, uh, particularly those who might be listening to this, who are doing long distance triathlon. So this is Dr. Craig Marker. He's a kettlebell training
1: expert and psychologist from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and he wrote a transformative article, one of the best things I've read in 20 years in the world of fitness on the website, breakingmuscle.com called Hit Versus Hurt. You can also find um, uh, Mark and I's take on it on Mark's Daily Apple. There's an article titled that same thing. So, we're all, we're all familiar with HIT. And the argument here, you could say we're playing with semantics, but in many cases, the HIT workout system presents a workout that is overly stressful and lasts for too long to deliver the intended benefits. And it comes at great expense with. Uh, extra stress and extra recovery time because the body is not capable of delivering maximum output again and again and again, uh, as you might see at a typical spin class in the gym, where the instructor is saying, Okay, we're going to sprint 10 times for 30 seconds. And the last one, we're going to pretend we're at the top of Alpe Duez in the tour and we're going to sprint for <laughs> two minutes. Okay, come on, you guys can do it. Dig deep. Come on, let's go. And I see this happening all the time when I'm walking past a boot camp class or see the coaches, uh, coaching the group of runners Tuesday night at the track, and they're going to do a set of six times 800. And I'm like, wait a second. Um, what, what's happening here is if you're asking for too long duration of a high intensity effort, it does not become high intensity anymore. It becomes, uh, medium, uh, overly stressful intensity where your form's going to break down. You're going to experience, uh, fatigue, form compromised, and depletion and exhaustion by the end of the workout. Mm -hmm. So if you're asked to do 10 times 30-second sprints, let's say with only 30 seconds rest or some arbitrary thing that people think, uh, you know, represents a a sensible workout, uh, it's gonna be set up to be overly stressful for most people. And so the idea of high-intensity repeat training, H-I-R-T, is the acronym that Dr. Marker describes in the article, is where when you perform an explosive high-intensity effort, it is of the same quality each time you do it over the course of the workout. In other words, if you're doing, uh, I like to do uh, six times 80 meters sprinting on the athletic field. And so my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth are of equal finishing time equal uh, rate of perceived exertion. I'm not digging deeper or trying harder on the sixth one. In fact, many times the fifth and the sixth one feels better than the first one because I'm getting warmed up and my, my nervous system is firing better and all that. But what happens is you curtail the workout or the high intensity stuff before you start to experience a increase in fatigue, uh, compromise form, any any type of soreness, stiffness, signs of the body wearing out. So everything's extremely high quality. And then the other really important attribute here is that the rest intervals are lengthy and that's in order to allow you to come back to the starting line and again, perform uh, an effort that is of consistent quality to the first one when you Uh, when you refresh. And so we're talking about like six to one recovery to work intervals when I'm doing these 80 meter sprints that take, uh, what 11 seconds or something like that. I'm resting for at least a minute, even though it seems like to most listeners, a ridiculously easy session to perform. Um, it's probably something that, uh, by far, the vast majority of fitness enthusiasts would benefit greatly from doing something that seems ridiculously downscaled from their 10 times 30 second sprint with 30 seconds rest that they're doing at class.
0: I, and I can see the benefit. I've tried since, since listening to that podcast with Craig Marker, I've tried that um, on the bike, 10 seconds flat out. And to be honest, when I'm looking at the power outputs, At around 10 seconds. I can see the power starting to drop. So doing it for 15 or 20 seconds, uh, it will be fading. The quality will be dropping off. Um, good one. Yeah. I've been, I've been taking 60 seconds rest or maybe 70, you know, it, it probably doesn't really matter. And I can maintain that for 10 reps and that's probably enough. And I can see the value of that for general fitness. And I can see that's that's completely anaerobic activity, isn't it? And so I my next question goes goes back to where I started. Is is there any value in this any time of the year for somebody who's training for an ultra long event, whether that be a trail run or um, a long distance swim or an Ironman triathlon? Yeah, good
1: question. So, if your goals are, I wouldn't gonna I would call those extreme ultra <laughs> endurance. Yeah, You know, an hour long race is an extreme endurance event. When we talk in terms of physiology and the relative contribution of the aerobic and the anaerobic system. So don't kid yourself when you're talking about speed work as a triathlete, when you're doing your (laughs) heels or whatever Uh, speed work is when you look at the velodrome and the guys are doing the four kilometer in the Olympics or the, the 500 or whatever, you know, um, And so if we understand the context of our goals and we're, we're trying to be an extreme endurance athlete, by far the greatest return on investment that you're going to get is from working the aerobic system and putting in those uh, long duration workouts where you can. Uh, to teach your body to become more and more efficient at burning fat uh, and going faster at the same heart rate. So that's where our devotion is going to lie. If we have those uh, distinct and pretty extreme goals. Uh, if you're talking about trying to become all around balanced fitness, anti-aging, uh, complete person and all that, uh, then we talk about sort of the primal approach to uh, fitness where it's a blend of low level aerobic movement. You're doing uh, sufficient resistance training, you're building muscle mass, and then you're doing explosive sprinting, which has so many hormonal and genetic signaling benefits. So if we're going to segment and talk to the extreme endurance athlete, I'm going to say that, um, these workouts are, you know, they can benefit you tremendously if you do them once in a while, and you'll experience a fitness breakthrough, because if you can become competent at sprinting, for example, uh, you, are then better at processing energy and firing the muscular nervous system at all slower speeds. And you're gonna be vastly better at doing a a tempo run if you can get competent at sprinting. So the payoff for doing a workout where you're only doing, you know, what amounts to minutes of hard effort, uh, it's really gonna help even if you're jogging slowly uh, through a marathon or a half marathon. Also, we know that the slow twitch muscle fibers fatigue Uh, during a difficult effort. And then we start to recruit the oxidative fast twitch fibers to finish from mile 20 to mile 26 on the marathon. And when you feel that aching uh, sensation in your hip flexors, lower back hamstrings, that is the slow twitch muscle fibers crapping out. And that's when you're either going to shuffle to the finish line, or if you've been appropriately trained and you can start recruiting some oxidative fast twitch, you'll be able to hang in there. It's not going to be pretty but that's, um, you know, that's
0: part of training is you've got to work that top end a little bit. Makes me think that even if you are aiming at doing an Ironman or, a, you know, an extreme ultra run having the foundations for that anti-aging, healthy human being with a range of different activities at different intensities lays the groundwork and the foundations for building the specific fitness on top of that. So actually for most of the year, that sort of approach, the 90-10 approach, the polarized training, probably going to be the best if you want to go out of this into your 50s and 60s. I like how you say 90-10, because I
1: hear 80-20 too much. I think um, Dr. Seiler's research was uh, touting that uh, elite athletes in all sports, cross-country skiing, swimming, track, uh, tour de France have an 80, 20 ratio. And I strongly disagree with, um, any recreational enthusiast trying to throw ratios in there when it comes to, uh, their training decisions. And this obligation to put uh, a significant amount of time going fast, because most people, um, have so much to gain on the aerobic side Mm -hmm. and the aerobic deficiency is so prevalent that if you can just go and get better and better and better at jogging, even though it's kind of frustrating or pedaling your bicycle at the appropriate aerobic heart rates, even if that means having to go to the shop and, and switch out for a bigger cog so you can go really, really slow up the hills, but we have to increase our efficiency of the aerobic system before we even worry about uh, speeding up. It's sort of like uh, they talk about, you know, building the Tesla in the factory and putting all the, the pieces together in such an amazing, wonderful machine and it's powered by electricity. And then you have solar panels on the roof. If we're going to extend the analogy to the ultimate vehicle or buying a broken down, uh, you know, <laughs> thing from your neighbor's front yard. I don't know if they have cars in the front yard in, in your country, but you know, you see people just with junk cars. And if yeah. you, if you spend a few bucks, you can go, uh, get the extra parts and then all of a sudden you're driving the smoke spewing out of the <laughs> exhaust pipe. Uh, but at least you're moving down the road and at least you're putting in your 30 miles a week or whatever. And that's a really powerful analogy for a lot of endurance athletes to figure out because if you're just pushing yourself hard and getting tired frequently in training and you're going slow anyway, there's a way to do this uh, on the cover of the book Primal Endurance that Mark Sisson and I wrote. It says, slow down to go faster. And that it implies the benefits you can gain from becoming aerobically efficient.
0: Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Primal Endurance, Brad. I mentioned that in the uh, in the previous podcast. Uh, I've spoken to Stephen Siler a few times, actually. I think 80-20 um, and that whole thing was miss misinterpreted by a lot of people it was it was the number of sessions that he talks about was 80% of them were aerobic which could actually amount to 95% of total training volume mm. and maybe two a week and he he did a really nice um him and his daughter did a really nice youtube video on um Molly is it Rydal the mm-hmm. um american runner who got third in, in the um, Olympic marathon. And I know. I know. she had 13 run sessions a week, I think, but only two of them were high quality. So that, that mm. would be 80-20 in terms of sessions, but probably only, we probably 95 to five. And, cool. and to be honest, yeah. when, I've, when I've done this with athletes I work with, I've found that even 10% of high intensity on a 10-hour week means one hour at high intensity. That's an awful lot of high intensity work. You know, if you're thinking, if you did one session where you had 15 minutes of total quality work at, you know, near to VO2 max, that's still, that's still a heavy duty workout.
1: Wow. That's a good distinction. I'm glad uh, to learn that from you because, um, what does 80, 20 really mean? Is it the number of sessions or the, uh, the duration and yes, seconds of high intensity exercise can pay tremendous dividends. And mm. there's great research. I love this book by Doug McGuff called body by science, where he's talking Uh, Specifically about um, how to train the body optimally and and get the most uh, muscle mass and anti aging and strength and power and fitness benefits. And he makes a really compelling argument that if you just push yourself to maximum effort uh, that lasts for seconds, you know, I can do one set of pull ups here and I'm completely exhausted and it's, you know, it's a major, major effort. And that, with science backing this notion, that single set to maximum effort. Uh, has a greater uh, physiological benefit than literally hours of uh, jogging or doing, uh, you know, low intensity, uh, numerous reps of the various machines at the gym. And so the body really responds well to, you know, maxing out. But of course, this only takes seconds out of hours of, you know, the big picture of developing your cardiovascular system. So if we just wanted to Um, segment for a moment away from the extreme endurance athlete with distinct goals, someone who's just trying to get fit. Now what you want is this creative blend of plenty of everyday movement at a comfortable pace. And that includes the aerobic workouts where we're regulating our heart rate properly and you have a tremendous obligation to get out there and put your body under resistance load on a regular basis. And then finally do some uh, brief explosive all-out sprints. You can say sprinting in terms of running, uh, ideally, I think because of the weight bearing and the bone density benefits, but sprinting can come with uh, a set of kettlebell swings that last for 10 seconds. And then you rest and then you do, you rest for a minute and then you do kettlebell swings for 10 more seconds or rowing or whatever you like to do for your sprinting. If you, need to do low impact
0: so that transitions us nicely brad into your routines which i'm i've been following you you've you're definitely a self-quantifier you train you try lots of stuff you walk the walk you talk the talk you're guiding us all through this sort of process towards getting older gracefully and extending our health span within the lifespan um incidentally going back to the bit you talked about the aerobic training and building the engine Mitochondrial dysfunction is one of those things that contributes to people losing functionality as a human when they get older. So if if we're doing lots of aerobic training at a low level, um, we're able to do it consistently if we don't have the oxidative stress. And we're creating more mitochondria, which is another um, anti-aging task that we're completing every day. So what I'm really interested in is what your routine is like. On a daily basis. And we'll point the listeners to some videos and some blogs and things that you've done. Um, So tell us what you do when you get up in the morning, first thing. Oh my gosh, the most exciting message I have to share
1: is this morning routine that I devised. It's now closing in on five years ago, and I haven't missed a single day. So I'm really dedicated to this. It's changed my life I strongly recommend it. I'm developing a, a a book and an online video course to help people get acquainted with with what I do and get really inspired and and develop their own morning routine. Uh, And I've kind of been a non-routine, rebellious, freewheeling nature kind of guy my whole life. I don't know if you're familiar with Gretchen Rubin and the book, The Four Tendencies, or you can go take a quiz on her website and determine which tendency you are. There's upholder, obliger, rebel, and questioner. And it's really cute stuff where it's just a personality exam, but it it takes only a few minutes and um, you might enjoy, listeners might enjoy just going over there and, and checking their tendencies. Of course, I came out to be the rebel tendency. I'm self-employed. I always have been. I was an athlete in an individual sport. So I have all these, uh, you know, Uh, checkpoints where um, I can pretty much do what I want every single day. I'm not a guy that jumps on the train and and goes into the office and uh, works in an organized setting. So that said, I think a little bit of uh, regimentation, structure, focus, accountability can be really helpful for someone like me who's not accustomed to that, as well as someone who feeds on that stuff anyway. And so this morning routine was originally designed because I was doing my sprint workouts, And they're pretty stressful. And what was happening was I'd wake up the next day and feel really beat up. My calves were sore for two or three days. I couldn't even jog hardly. Uh, And it took a long time to recover from these awesome sessions. And I realized that I didn't really approximate what I was doing at these, uh, you know, important maximum effort sessions in my other workouts, other, other workouts were recovering, jogging, uh, you know, maybe throwing around some weight or doing something, but it had nothing to do with, you know, going out and doing maximum effort sprinting. And so I thought, what if i did something injected something into my routine where I approximated the challenge of sprinting. I prepared my muscles and joints in some way for what I was going to face when it was time to open up the throttle. So I created these, uh, flexibility, mobility, core strengthening, and leg strengthening drills that you can see on my video. There's Brad Kern's morning routine on YouTube. And, um, you know, that seemed to be a tremendous benefit because, uh, I'd wake up in the morning, uh, feeling a little lighter on my feet. I didn't have that old time athlete shuffle for the first five minutes where the ankles creaky and the knees a little stiff and the lower backs a little stiff. I kind of bounced out of bed and like something was kicking in where it was building or raising the foundation from which I launched all of my formal workouts. So, this morning routine doesn't count as a workout. It's just a morning wake up scene. Um, and then, whatever workouts I do, especially those sprint workouts that were really challenging, I was noticing myself recovering better and, and being less, uh, you know, creaky and in general. And so, there's some important elements that I want to describe about it that I think are, are necessary for uh, the listener to have a, a great experience. And one of them is if you're trying to build a new habit, you want to start small and doable and sustainable where the person can nod their head and say, of course, I can knock that out every day. That's no problem. And in a lot of cases, uh, maybe the best morning routine that you can get is to agree to leash up your dog And get that dog out the door first thing, as soon as you awaken for one trip around the block. I mean, I feel like you have a commitment to an animal when you agree to own an animal that you got to give them the life it deserves. The great trainer, Cesar Milan, uh, he said that dogs in order want exercise, um, uh, number two, food, and number three, love and attention in that order. So number one is exercise. So if there's something that you need to to get yourself out of bed to get motivated, boy, think of something bigger than yourself and say, okay, my morning routine is going to be my dog walk around the block. Um, If you like yoga and you just want to get some energy in the morning rather than shuffling to the kitchen and and drinking a central nervous system stimulant, uh, go outdoors and do the yoga sun salute, which is a series of really simple, gentle exercises where you inhale and extend the body and exhale and compress the body and it's a great way to start your day. Uh, me being an athlete i wanted to devise something that had direct application to my performance goals uh, especially those sprint workouts that were beating me up so when you see me doing my contortions on the ground and in the first 50 seconds of the video everything's in fast motion so you can see what i do that takes 35 minutes and then the rest of the video i'm describing some of the moves to say here's what i do with my legs here's how i do the yoga stretch so it's a mixture of like uh, you know yoga type stretches um core exercises is where the legs are above uh, uh, off the ground and um, I'm working the core and, and stretching the muscles and it all blends together into a nice sequence where I do the exact same thing every morning, the same count, the same sequence, the same order. So it really becomes like a meditative experience where I hit the deck as soon as I wake up uh, I actually go outside because I want to get the direct sun exposure into my eyeballs, which kicks in those beneficial hormonal processes that would be the uh, suppression of melatonin and the rise of uh, the desirable rise of cortisol, serotonin, and the desirable decline in adenosine. That all happens when your eyeballs hit direct light. It doesn't have to be a sunny day in England. Don't worry. Even a cloudy day is plenty of light to get you awakened. So it's like, um go outdoors even if it's cold, I'm sorry. It's a great cold exposure session for your first thing in the morning. Uh, and then, you know, commence the sequence immediately and boy, it's, you know, it's a natural wake up call. It's better than coffee. And then, uh, when you show that you have that level of control, discipline, and focus in your life that you can get up every day and you know exactly what you're doing, um, that, Ideally, will carry over into all other things and and challenges and stresses and distractions that you face in everyday life. So I like to think that I'm a more disciplined, focused person. Um, I still have trouble looking over at my email inbox when I'm trying to focus on a peak performance cognitive task. But it really has been a centerpiece of my life to say at least I know that I'm I'm kicking ass first thing in the morning. And yes, first thing in the morning is super important because that's when uh, the brain is in the state of that high-level strategic thinking, reasoning, problem-solving, calmness, perspective, all those things are ready for you to implement a new habit and have it have that uh, ripple effect on everything that you do. In contrast, I know I'm doing a long monologue, and then Simon's going to weigh in here and see what he thinks about all this. But um, in contrast, do you know what 84% of Americans do first thing in the morning? They do the same thing.
0: Uh, Yeah, probably turn on the coffee pot and turn on the TV.
1: They reach for their mobile device. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is a disastrous, has disastrous psychological impacts. Um, The experts contend that as soon as you reach for the device, you flip your brain into the reactive instant gratification dopamine triggering mode because you're reacting to novel stimulation in the form of text messages or social media stream. And as soon as you go there, as soon as you transition over into uh, the dopamine triggers and the instant gratification and the short attention span stuff, it's very difficult to bring your brain brain back into the high-level thinking, strategic reasoning, calmness, perspective, mindfulness, state. And so we ruin things right away when we reach for that device. And so that is one of the great benefits that you're showing the discipline against this world that's closing in on us, it feels like, when we're constantly uh, 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 entertained and distracted.
0: I I feel like you and I are kindred spirits here, Brad, because um, you were talking about you've been self-employed for most of your life. That's me. I've not perhaps... um, operating at the same athletic uh, stratosphere that you have, but still I've been engaged in triathlon for, for over 30 years. Um, I'm following this uh, mobility routine, it, 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 in some ways inspired by uh, the ones that you were talking about. I walk outside here into my yard, I get my yoga mat out. Uh, I'm thinking about what I do when it gets doesn't get light until eight o'clock in the morning in the UK in the winter, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that when it comes. Um, I, I Get my ear uh, I turn my the only time I look at my phone is to go to Spotify and put the morning jazz on. I have my little boom speaker. Um, I put it on the table. I do my 45 minute routine, which is 30 minutes of movement and movement practice, which was inspired by Kelly Storette and he talks about daily movement practice. And then I do a 10-minute concentrated strength uh kettlebell circuit. So I do that every day, but I don't wow. I don't get to that point where you've talked about where I get sore. But I can look at the data that I'm keeping that I'm lifting more now than I was three months ago. So I know I'm getting stronger, um, but I'm getting stronger in small amounts. So it doesn't completely crush me. And then I'm incapable of doing anything else. Um, so I don't look at my phone until eight o'clock. I don't have coffee until eight o'clock. So I'm I'm ticking a lot of the boxes there, my friend. So um, good to see we're on the same path. I'm, I'm slightly behind you. But I would like you, I've seen your... Uh, videos about your strength do you do you do a concerted strength training routine or do you do these every hour on the hour type things I know you talk about when you go past your pull-up bar when you go past your hex uh, hexagonal deadlift bar and you do a set of uh, deadlifts is that the way in which you build strength into your lifestyle Hmm. well I do
1: uh, some formal workouts uh, but I also have become a Bigger fan of these micro workouts and the whole concept that if you just throw in uh, a little bit of effort here and there, it can really add up to have a wonderful cumulative fitness benefit over time. So I might be that guy that uh, walks under the pull up bar and will do one set, which certainly isn't too impressive and doesn't mm-hmm. count as a workout. Uh, and other days I will, you know, stay focused for uh, a period of 15 or 20 minutes in my home environment where I have the pull-up bar, I have the stretch cords, I have the X three bar, I have the hexagonal deadlift bar in the backyard. I got a pretty good setup here where I don't need to go to the gym to put my body under resistance load, nor do any of us as long as we have a a place to do a a deep squat or a push-up, right? So there's no excuses. You can always put yourself into a little bit of, um, uh resistance exercise in a moment's notice you don't even need to warm up if you're in your cubicle and you want to stand up and perform a set of 20 deep squats that's a pretty significant effort where even a fit person will start to feel the burn at 17 18 19 you'll be breathing hard for a little bit and that one minute however long it takes to throw in a set of deep squats into your work day is a fantastic benefit on so many different levels one of them is building the fitness but also uh, getting the blood flowing, the, the oxygen delivery uh, is increased just with a one minute effort. And then you're back to better cognitive focus. Uh, you've changed the positioning of your body. So you're not getting into those repetitive load problems when you're sitting in a chair without any break. And so I'm a big fan of micro workouts and I'm also very careful and, and I'm, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not doing really well at this. I'm a work in progress, but I'm trying really, really hard to not cross that line where my workouts are too stressful. And this message has been beaten into my head by the great leaders like Maffetone, like Dr. Craig Marker, like Joel Jameson, MMA trainer based in Washington that trains world champion MMA trainers. Yep. Uh, the guy who was on Joe Rogan, Fearis Zahabi has a great clip on YouTube where he was talking to Rogan about how he doesn't want his athletes getting sore after workouts. And Joe Rogan's like, what the F you talking about? I'm sore after every single workout. What do you mean? You talking about uh, beginners? He goes, no, I'm talking about world champions. There's no reason to get sore. Maffetone uh, emphasizes this point also that muscle soreness, arguably there might be some bodybuilders that disagree and they want to go for slight soreness. I've talked to some people about this, uh, but you know, when you are repairing muscle soreness, you are diverting uh, precious protein synthesis energy toward repairing the damage from your sore muscles rather than using protein synthesis to make those muscles mm. stronger or larger, if that's your goal, or simply be ready for an ensuing workout where you can add more fitness capability rather than be stuck in recovery mode. And so, boy, like I said before, I feel great out there on the track. I'm doing awesome. I want to do a few more jumps to get my technique just right. And then I realized, oh crap, I overdid it. And here goes some muscle soreness that I have to ride out for three days rather than keeping things a little more steady and consistent.
0: I've had a few conversations with uh, triathlon coach, Alan Cousins, who's up in Boulder about this idea that if you do a session that's such a hero session today, that it compromises your ability to do your next next three Mm -hmm. days of sessions, then actually that session probably hasn't been worth it. You know, it's the consistency that in the long term that builds fitness. And what you've got to do is protect the sessions for tomorrow. So back to your point there, if you end up too sore, you're not going to be able to do that session tomorrow. And so you've upset the consistency.
1: Yeah. And I think we um, we love looking at the elite athletes for inspiration and modeling. And you live in the same town as the Brownlees, some of the greatest triathletes of all time. And they've had these amazing accomplishments and their level of fitness is so extraordinarily high that it's it's hard to even believe Um, You know, as an old time triathlete myself, seeing these guys with their running performances, running 27, 28 minute 10 Ks, I just, I can't even fathom it. Uh, But there's one thing that we have to respect about uh, the the elite level performers is that they have a, you know, these genetic gifts that are probably uh, relevant and B, the dedication and the time duration that they've put in to reach this high standard. They have a much easier time going out and, you know, Mm -hmm. crushing themselves and bouncing back the next day uh, to live and tell about it. Uh, But that doesn't happen very often even with the elite athletes. And so by and large, the elite athlete is pushing their body uh, not as much as the average recreational competitor. So they are well within their capabilities more so than the average Joe who went to that Tuesday night track workout and tried to keep up with group C to do the six times 800 meters really when they should be in group D or E. And that's kind of sad and disturbing to me because I think we lose people who are well meaning. They want to have some fun. They are competitive. They are type A. They have their goals. They're really pushing hard. They get immersed into sport. It becomes community and and a social outing, but it's physically too stressful for them because the approach is flawed. And if everybody just toned it down and turned the dial down three notches, we'd all be better off, especially on race day when we had this reserve tank and this baseline level Mm. of health and vitality that we can go out there. And yes, once in a while, you want to crush yourself. Make sure you have a race number on your chest instead of doing it because some some wanker passed you uh, on the bicycle
0: trail and you have to show him who's boss in your town. Well, leading up to London 2012, three sessions a day. Seven sessions a week, seven days a week, right? 21 sessions for the Brownleys, And there were probably four key sessions in there. One swim, one bike, and two runs. And that Malcolm, their coach, the running coach, would just say, Tuesday night at the track, Saturday morning on the grass, don't turn up tired. That was the only rule. Turn up and don't turn up tired. And But the basis for all that was, what do we need to be in the right shape in London in 2012? This is the training we need to do. What do we have to do to ensure that consistency for the next two years? So um, Brad, you talk a lot about diet in the last conversation we had, and there were some very upset people who didn't like the fact that I'd mentioned carnivore, you know, I, I did go back to them and ask them whether they were open minded about the discussion, but uh, that's nutrition for you. But you've talked about, you talked about that transition um, away from uh, vegetables towards more meat because of, you know, the bloating you were getting in your stomach. You also talked um, earlier on in this conversation about the keto um experiments we were doing you seem to have moved through uh, a, f- a fair few of those diets that are popular now and i'm sure that's been experimentation and thinking that was good for you at the time and then working out there wasn't and moving on um where are you at now um with the carnivore diet do you see that as being the place for you in the long term and my second question would be on the diets that you've chosen and used um Which ones did you feel work for you in the short term? And are there any that you definitely wouldn't return to?
1: Yeah, thanks. Good questions. Um, I I think it's important to um, maybe not pigeonhole with some, um, some, some labels to where the person gets the wrong idea. So we talked about carnivore. I'm very excited about this movement, especially for people who have, you know, long-term suffering of autoimmune and inflammatory conditions, where if they eliminate all plant foods, maybe forever, like Jordan Peterson and his daughter, Michaela, the most famous, you know, crusaders where they turned around their health By getting rid of these, you know, highly allergenic plant foods to them, that's great for those people who are sufferers. Um, I'm not one of those people where I have to be in this strict regimented situation um, because I I feel pretty healthy and I don't notice any adverse effects from um, even occasional consumption of this or that. So the the idea that I I should probably convey is that I'm I'm going for the most nutrient-dense diet possible. Uh, that i also enjoy and leaves me completely satisfied um and it happens that the you know sustainably sourced animal foods are by far the highest ranked foods in terms of their nutritional value i have a chart that you can find on my website bradkearns.com it's called the carnivore scores chart you can download it for free and it has tiered ranking system so we have the most nutrient dense foods on the planet Uh, by independent, you know, this is not an opinion or someone who likes the taste of kale more than liver, uh, but liver uh, oysters and salmon eggs, you know, are are pretty much in the stratosphere as far as their ranking. And then you go down and and see things like uh, the other organ meats, uh, pasture raised eggs, the oily cold water fish family uh, that you might've heard of smash hits that stands for salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. And so when we're emphasizing the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Boy, look what it turns out to be. It's kind of like a carnivore-ish pattern because the plant foods, by comparison, don't have nearly the nutritional value and for some people or many people there might be some sensitivities there that are causing adverse health consequences without even knowing it uh, so you're sitting down to eat your kale salad thinking that you're going to be in the all-star category you ask for chicken instead of steak because you don't want to uh, you want to watch your intake of red meat but now the research is clear that red meat has a superior nutritional and fatty acid profile to chicken and pork so you hear the people saying yeah i just eat chicken and fish i'm trying to get healthy Oh, good for you. They should be going more toward, you know, uh, uh, if you can find the grass fed red meat, those are going to be higher ranking period. Um, So, you know, the the other thing I, I guess I should mention is that the the category that I'm in, masters athlete, still trying to perform and recover. My performance and recovery goals are really high up on the list. I don't have body composition or adverse blood work that I'm working with or dealing with now. So my carbohydrate intake is as much as I need to feel uh, good performance recovery. And I'm not counting anything, but I'm not denying myself anything either. And so um, I joke sometimes that I'm on the C and C diet, which stands for carnivore and chocolate because I do love to consume, you know, large quantities of 85% or higher dark chocolate. It's delicious. It's got many nutritional benefits and it has some incidental carbohydrates in there when you're eating as much as I am. Um, That's making a significant contribution to my carb consumption. I might enjoy sweet potato. I might enjoy the corn tortillas that go on my eggs or my steak. And so um, it's not a ketogenic diet by any means. And I feel like, um, I'm not in that category where I need to make a concerted effort to, rest- to restrict my carbohydrates, but I do restrict those big three most offensive modern foods. Um, and that would be refined sugars, refined grains, and industrial seed oils. So I'm trying to get my consumption to near zero with the oils. Um, I'm sure some are going in at some point, but not if I can help it. And then these sugars and grains are very incidental. Uh, minimal piece of my total caloric intake.
0: If we've got a few more minutes, Brad, I just wanted to ask you, you, you've done quite a few videos of you diving into your freezer chest out in the yard full of cold water. I know with you living up near Lake Tahoe, you were, um, going in there regularly. Uh, do you use hot and cold, uh, as a daily thing or, a, a, a few times a week? Uh, I sure do. It's very seasonal, right?
1: So Um, Lake Tahoe does not count as a cold plunge in the summer months. So that I I call that a swim when I go in there in the summer and I love swimming and I'll swim for, you know, 10 minutes. I'm not training for the next Olympics, but it's really nice exercise. And you know what, you can get a little bit of a chill after 10 minutes, even if the water is 70 Fahrenheit in the winter, my friend and I go in there when the water lowers down to 42 degrees Fahrenheit, and we'll go in there for a few minutes. And that's a great invigorating cold plunge, just like the chest freezer that I have, uh, that, you know, is, is useful year round to get a cold exposure experience. And so I think, um, these are really, uh, fun things to do. There's many benefits psychologically, as well as that physical and hormonal benefit. Uh, but you know, when we start talking about um too many of these objectives i feel like some people are turned off because they're like that guy's ridiculous he's jumping into a chest freezer filled with cold water <laughs> and that might be far down the line from something that you uh crave to do you the listener crave to do right now because you're just trying to get the kids off to school and make sure you can make some healthy choices with your food and see if you have time to do a workout so if we can kind of Uh, encourage the idea of dabbling in different things and turning the shower faucet to cold for the last 30 seconds of your shower. Mm -hmm. Now you've joined the prestigious cold exposure club. You don't need to purchase a chest freezer quite yet, but I think it is really fun to kind of, you know, uh, experiment, challenge yourself, think differently than the mainstream. Um, I I really pay attention to the uh, throwaway comments that I get from people, acquaintances, friends, family, whatever, where you know they do sort of a subtle dig at this crazy stuff I'm doing because possibly they're intimidated by it or they don't want to have an open mind about it. And so if someone teases me about my unique dietary habits or the fact that I jump into this freezing cold water, or I'm still trying to you know, put on a, a, a track suit and, and run around, uh, even though I'm you know, older than tw- twice as old as all the Olympians we just saw on TV, Um, you know, I I don't pay any mind to it, but I I do encourage people to be more open-minded and try to awaken that athlete inside each of us and do something that's challenging and and brings out the passion and the competitiveness in you. And we want to live that way the rest of our life. That's what HealthSpan is all about, rather than just being a spectator, um, you know, in a wheelchair, wheeling up to the screen so you can watch the Olympics. That's not what I'm all about. I'd rather be out there performing.
0: Yeah, me too. Amen to that, Brad. Um, For me, it's about being out there and performing and trying to do it for as long as possible i just want to have a few months of not feeling very well and then pop off i don't want to be (laughs) i don't want to be in a long descent down to the graveyard really i just want to i want to come screeching in on my harley and uh, be ready love it man that's beautiful yeah well listen brad i really appreciate you sharing those insights with us um I will find, on, if you share with me as many of those resources uh, with those videos on about your morning routine, and we'll we'll see if we can get one of you jumping into your chest freezer uh, just for a bit of fun uh, and some of the other stuff. I've, I've made a list of some of those um, uh, articles and books and videos that you mentioned, so we'll share all those. So Brad Kearns, mm. um, Keto Reset, Two Meals a Day, Primal Endurance, uh, b podcast. Thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Great show. Take care, my friend. See you again soon. Thank you to Brad for joining me again on the High Performance Human Podcast. There are links to everything we discussed in today's chat in the show notes below. Now, I hope you liked what we were chatting about today. And if you do, why not consider subscribing to the High Performance Human Podcast on iTunes and get new episodes as they become available each week. Oh, and while you're there, please don't forget to leave a rating and review. Right. That's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. Remember, being a high-performance human is a journey, so stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.